Hi everybody, welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis and we are coming to you today from the venerable Sear Sound Studios in Midtown Manhattan. Absolutely thrilled to be in this uh, incredible facility and we're thrilled that it still exists with the way things are going with New York City uh, studios. So, uh, But even more so, I'm just really excited to be uh, have the opportunity to sit down with our Artist of the Month, uh, one of the most successful and in-demand independent jazz record producers, the great Matt Pearson. Uh, Matt has worn many hats throughout his uh, illustrious career, uh, originally as a musician and a trumpet player. Uh, uh, becoming a record uh, producer and then becoming a record executive. Um, he is a graduate of the esteemed University of Miami Jazz program. Uh, he led Blue Note marketing and A&R departments. Um, and then after that was hired by uh, the legendary Mo Austin and became uh, executive vice president and general manager of jazz at Warner Brothers. Uh, while he was there, he garnered over 40 Grammy nominations and countless number one singles for his artists. Uh, his myriad producing credits uh, this could take up this entire interview to read them all, but uh, just to give you a little nutshell, Brad Meldow, Joshua Redman, Pat Metheny, Bob James, Kirk Whalem, Jane Monheit, just to name a few. Uh, he has produced uh, a series of compilations and reissues, including classic packages from Duke Ellington, George Benson, Bill Evans, David Sanborn, Jaco Pastorius, and numerous others. Uh, in addition to his work as an independent producer, uh, he is an A&R consultant for Sony Masterworks. And uh, I have to say, we, we reminisced before we started today about the first time that I had the good fortune of meeting Matt. We, uh, we did a 10-show, uh, ten, ten two-week run with Julio Iglesias back in the late 80s at Radio City Music Hall. And that was the first time I had the pleasure of meeting Matt. He was in the trumpet section. I was in the trombone section. And so uh, it's gone from there. I've uh, had the great uh, opportunity and pleasure to work for Matt many times over the years. It's always great when the phone rings and it's Matt and, uh, and he's got a new project on the, on the, on the line. So, uh, Matt, thank you so much for taking time out Pleasure, of your man. incredibly busy schedule. I'm really excited to hear your viewpoint on so many things we're going to talk about today. Why don't we first talk about uh, aspects of your career um, and then go all the way back, starting uh, you grew up in Michigan. Um, your dad, who sadly passed away this week, um, our condolences on that, but he was a, a legendary jazz pianist and jazz educator. Maybe talk about what, how you got into music and mm -hmm. the trumpet and where things started out for you. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, was, I was the youngest of four. It was a very musical family. My, um, you know, my oldest sister is, uh, runs the Flint Institute of Music, um, which is this incredible community music program up in Michigan. Uh, she was a violist and, and is in music. My, old, my sis, other sister, Melissa, is the uh, associate concertmaster for the Jacksonville Symphony. Mm, okay. She's an incredible violinist. Uh, my brother, Eric, is a lawyer now, but he was a fantastic tuba player oh, growing up. Cool. And so I, and I was a tuba player. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up, um, it was all assumed we were all going to play music because my dad was a music educator. And, um, you know, I was exposed to all kinds of music from when I was very young. Uh, I ended up on oboe in the beginning. For a year and a half I was playing oboe and then a story that I've told which is I, uh, my dad had these 45s of some jazz stuff like old uh, Verve little LPs or MRC little LPs of Clifford Brown and I found one that was Joy Spring and I put it on uh -huh. my little <laughs> record player and I heard Clifford playing Joy Spring and it, it completely changed my life. I was like I gotta be able to do that and I'm 
sitting there trying to figure out how to make a reed. So that, that wasn't going to work. But my dad had a trumpet in the house because my dad had been a trumpet player. So I picked up the horn and tried to play along with Clifford. And, of course, I got some notes out because I had from playing the oboe, I kind of had an airstream. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, this is what I do. So when my dad got home, I'm like, Dad, come here. Check this out. <laughs> Listen to this. And as if he hadn't heard Joy Spring. And I said, I, I got to switch to trumpet. And he's like, oh, man. Because, you know, my siblings were all violin, viola, and tuba. And I was going to play oboe. And I, and I think he didn't want us to be jazz musicians. You know, mm-hmm. um, He had been through that and had had friends. And it was like this is he wanted us to make a living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there aren't a lot of great oboe players, so maybe he figured. But but he couldn't really argue once he saw the passion <laughs> um, I had for it. And, but I agree, he was like, but you're going to play legit. You know, you can play jazz also, but you better learn to play legit. Mm-hmm. So I switched to trumpet and I studied. I did, it was kind of a jack of all trades. I played, you know... In the Michigan Youth Symphony, I played principal trumpet in that group. And um, Kelso, John Kelso was in the trumpet section. Um, a lot of people I've run off of the years have been there. But um, I played le- that. I was becoming a lead player pretty early. I kind of had range, thankfully, from the beginning. Um, and just all, all kinds of music. And then I, um, you know, there were other things I did growing up, you know, as an actor and a lot of other stuff that I thought I might want to do. But music was the calling. So mm. I went to University of Michigan, uh, University of Miami, um, Jazz uh, studio music and jazz major um, was really inspired by Whit Seidner. Eventually, got in the concert jazz band and had some great experience there. Um, and you know, f- my goal was to be Jerry Hay. Mm. Um, I was writing some charts. I would transcribe his arrangements. I was really into. I was really into records from very young. I was a record collector, and I would not just be into the jazz stuff and, and certain records and analyzing solos and transcribing, but the actual record making process always fascinated me. I was really into, from a very young age, into like Steely Dan and Weather Report and Earth, Wind & Fire and Al Jarreau records and Jerry's Horn Charts, and so I'd write that stuff out. And when I got to school, and that was my goal, was because I knew I wasn't a real soloist. I never mm. had the, the wherewithal and the dedication to put in the time mm. to really become a great soloist. I could play in a big band chart or a Latin gig, but I wasn't going to be a competi- competitive. But I could read real well, and I had range, and I could play a lot of things, so... But anyway, over time, you know, I just expanded all of my, my horizons in music um, other than playing. You know, once I finished school, I was in Miami a total of eight years. I was playing, you know, six nights a week in a top 40 band and playing a bunch of Latin gigs. But also I took a job at a record store, um, Peaches, in Miami. Um, initially, I took the job because I, I, I found out that if you worked at the store, you could not only get promos for free, but you could get buy stuff at cost. So I knew, I looked at it and I said, well, it's only going to pay five bucks an hour or whatever the hell it was. But if I did the math, I was buying so many records because I, I had this huge record collection. I was like, every month I'm going to make another, save another $200 or something. So I took the job so I could do that. But eventually I just got really into it and I became uh, the head buyer while still playing, uh, you know, so didn't have a girlfriend at the time, obviously. But, <laughs> but no, and then, and, and again, over, t- over time, while, once I became the head buyer, we were b- reporters to Billboard. And at that time, it's pre-SoundScan. And the way they came up with the Billboard chart was they would just call important stores and say, what are your top ten records? And you tell them what your top ten records are. Well, those top ten records weren't the top ten records. <laughs> you know, they were your top ten well, records. Well, they, they were the top ten records that were suggested to me by several promotion <laughs> people who were willing to send me a lot of product. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, Susan Levin from Blue Note, for example, 
um, would call, hey, what, you know, we're, real, we're working this record, you know, this current George Adams and Don Pullen quartet record. How's it doing? I said, well, you know, we sold one in the past two weeks. You know, well, you know, we're, we're you know, anything you want. You know, it's like <laughs> they'd send me a bunch of Blue Note stuff, and Don Pullen all of a sudden sold 10 copies. <laughs> so there was a lot of that. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I'll admit that, you know, it's not a criminal act, but everyone was doing it. <laughs> so, but there were certain people because of that. Brian Backus was at Verve Records, and he's still a dear friend. Um, Brian was at, was, was at Poly, Polygram, uh, and, and, several other people I had gotten to know in the business and Susan. So finally I just said, you know, there was a point where I'm on a gig and I was sitting, it was a moment of realization. I was on a, in, a, in a pit or playing behind Melissa Manchester or some one of these Miami Beach gigs mm-hmm. and I was playing second trumpet. Sometimes I'd play lead, but sometimes I'd play second, but, you know, um, and I was on this gig and I'm sitting next to this really great, I was 25 or whatever and the guy next to me was 45 playing mm-hmm. lead. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, my, what's, what am I in this for? Maybe in 20 years I'll be one seat over. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel passionate about it. Mm-hmm. I loved playing, but I didn't want my business to be that. Yeah. And this is nothing against making a living as a working musician in that way. I just wanted to make a difference somehow. I wanted, yeah. and, and I was really into records. Mm-hmm. So I decided I wanted to get in the record business and I moved to New York. Um, That's amazing. I mean, I hadn't heard that aspect of your early yeah. early career, but boy, the combination of being at University of Miami, learning on that aspect, but then also obviously what you learned at the record store, like, yeah, hey, it's perfect for a in, perfect setup well, for uh, what was to come in, uh, in, and there in were New York. A couple other things I was doing, like I, I was working part time for BMI as a logger. I got to you know a guy at BMI, and what the logger does is they'd send you to to um, to restaurants and clubs and stuff that were not paying their BMI licensing fee. Mm-hmm. And I would go in and log what songs I heard because I knew a lot of music. Mm-hmm. So I'd write down the songs, and, and, and if I didn't, I'd make some notes to remind myself to look it up later. Then I'd hand in this logging report, and then BMI would go after them and threaten a lawsuit if they didn't agree to pay their BMI fee. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that once or twice a week. Wow. When I had a free few hours, I'd go to some restaurant in Miami Beach and act like I could, and they'd pay for my meal. I could get expenses. So I'd eat a free meal, write down some tunes, and hand in a report. <laughs> and I did a radio show at college and stuff. So yeah. I just wanted to know all parts of the business. I wanted to walk, you know, if I was, especially near the end, I, I wanted to get as much of a varied experience, you know, I played in recording studios. Um, so that when I got my foot in the business after moving to New York, I kind of had a well-rounded understanding of all aspects of it. So when you when you talk about it, clearly you've made such a huge impact on the on the jazz world and and the record business, let's talk about your or the the first big th- thing, which seems to me would be your time at Blue Note and yeah. and your relationship with Bruce Lundball yeah. and him mentoring you and the impact seems like it started started there, you know. And yeah. Maybe maybe share your your thoughts and memories about that. Bruce, time. um, who passed a few years back, um. You know, when I moved to New York and got in the business, the, the first job was, you know, and I moved up without a job. I moved up, all I knew was I had a job in the cassette department of Tower Records. And I had about 1500 bucks to my name, and I drove my truck up. And But Susan had led me to believe there was a shot at, in an assistant job at Blue Note to be her assistant. Um, it was totally entry-level promotion assistant job. But I moved up, and then six weeks after I started working at Tower, I got the job at Blue Note. This is April Fool's Day, April 1st, um, 1998. 1988 um, and part of it was I had met Bruce and Michael Cascuna mm-hmm. and I still remember when I was a kid as a trumpet player my, my da- every year we'd get records for Christmas and my dad got me this record called The Beginning and the End 
which is this Clifford Brown record that's his earliest sessions and then his last gig. Mm. In reality, it ends up that it wasn't really his last gig, but that's how they sold it. And they were told this tape was from his last gig before he got in the car and died. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the ba- on the back of it, the liner notes were by Bruce Lundvall. And I still remember seeing it. At that time, Bruce was the head of marketing at Columbia Records. And I still remember reading this and going, Bruce Lundvall, direct, you know, VP Marketing, Columbia. Mm. And remembering seeing that and thinking, God, oh, isn't this cool? This marketing guy is into jazz. Then eventually, once I got into records and all that, I knew who Bruce was, and I knew what he had done in reactivating Blue Note. So my dream was to go work at, at Blue Note. Mm-hmm. Um, the two guys I really wanted to know and work with were Bruce and Mo Austin, because after knowing enough about the music business, stepping into it, it was like those were the two my two pillars of brilliance within the music industry. Mm-hmm. It's what Bruce was and what Blue Note was, and it's what Mo had created, the culture he had created at Warner Brothers Records. Um, I wanted to have that kind of experience. So anyway, I started work with Bruce. He, um, I mean, I could talk forever about it. Sure. I mean, the yeah. part of part of that, I don't know how much editing you can do with this, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, right off, I mean, he was this incredibly huge character, um, an incredibly loving, beautiful, warm guy. Never known anyone with so much passion for jazz, so much positivity. No one had ever had anything negative to say about the guy. Um, returned every phone call. Um, really was in it for the music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were drawbacks to that because I ended up being his number two guy. So artists would have a meeting with Bruce, and, of course, Bruce would say yes. It was Mr. Yes, they called him. And then they'd come down the hall. If I, if I didn't, wasn't able to usurp him and get into that meeting and be there to kind of, you know, temper it, he, they'd come down the hall. Hey, I met with Bruce. He said we could have a, I could get an ad in Downbeat Magazine, full-page ad in Downbeat Magazine. And I'd be the one that would say, well, really, listen. What he meant was, <laughs> if within the context of our marketing budget, that makes sense for us. But listen, here's the story. If we only do this group ad where you're a part of it, we'll have enough money left to take you to this other higher independent promotion. You know, So it was a really great lesson yeah. um, in, in, in that way. Um, but, you know, one of the funniest things that happened with Bruce was um, I, I had been working there. I sat in the desk in the hallway out in front of Susan's office, and Bruce would always walk by in the morning, Hello, lad, how are you? you know, he's, <laughs> and this one, you know, I'd been there maybe a week and a half, and he came down the hall and goes, How are you, lad? Let's go to lunch. <laughs> uh, no, he said, I want to show you something. Come on. And I said, Oh, shit. And I said, Susan, Bruce is, you know. So he took me downstairs, and at that time our office was at uh, uh, 710, or, it was on 7th Avenue and 52nd Street. And we walked out of the office, and he's walking me around the corner, and he's just talking to me about, you know, how's it going, you know, how's Susan treating you, you know. And we turn around the corner, and we get to Flash Dancers. <laughs> and he turns down and walks in. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? My new boss, Bruce Lundball, this legend, is going to take me to a strip club at 1 o'clock. This is crazy. And we go down into the strip club, and I'm going, what the fuck is going on? I hope I have some singles. And he, uh, <laughs> and as we walk down in there, there's like a couple of random businessmen and a couple of girls and stuff. And he goes, you see that right over there? I go, yeah. He goes, That's, that was the peanut gallery. That's in, in, we'd give for a dollar, be able to sit up there and have a beer. It was Birdland. Yeah. And I don't know if everyone knows that, but it's the yeah. exact space that was Birdland. And I didn't know that. <laughs> and then he started, then we went and had lunch, and he told me all these incredible stories about coming in on the bus with his friends from Jersey and hearing Bird and Miles Coltrane and all of this. Um, just an incredible guy. And what I learned more than anything, I, I learned a lot from this guy, but mainly it really had to do with um, 
true passion for an artist and what makes an artist an individual. Um, part of it's what I kind of sensed and knew from the music I loved, but he really put it into practice. Um, not, and, and understanding the balance between art and commerce. He found a way to survive within that company with the longest list of bosses you'd ever see. That, that company changed hands so many times while he was at Blue Note. They moved it from company to company. The way I got the job was originally it was part of, it was part of EMI, and then it moved over to Capitol Records, and that's the point I was able to come in. So it was no longer under EMI, it was under Capitol. Hmm. But then after I left, then it switched around to different bosses, and, and, and different people would come in, and they consolidate departments. And through all of that, Bruce survived. Hmm. Because he always had this sense of how to balance you know, catalog billing, how do you continue to re-release the right kind of material at the right pace um, while you, you take chances on certain frontline artists. Balancing the artists that you aren't know they aren't going to make money but they're going to continue to uh, uh, give you credibility and be a talent magnet for you. You know, putting out solo piano, uh, solo piano recordings of McCoy Tyner while you also sign and develop, you know, Gonzalo Rubacaba mm-hmm. and, 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 and Jackie Terrace and like all these different musicians. So a really great balance of that. And then understanding the pop side. So whether it was signing Dave Koz or, or Rochelle Farrell and Diane Reeves, um, his understanding of artists that, that cross boundaries and how do you work with them and find a way to give them the opportunity to realize all of their vision, mm-hmm. not put them in a pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think it's one of the challenges that in time looking back with those two artists which with Rochelle Farrell and Diane Reeves in a way and Bobby McFerrin the diversity of their career is the result of Bruce allowing them to spread their wings and do their thing another executive would say no listen you're going to be th- be this mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you're the next Whitney Houston mm-hmm. no it was we're going to let the music dictate and in some cases that doesn't always work there are artists when given that much freedom it doesn't get the best possible results either creatively or from a business standpoint but more, it's better to have that risk than to force people to do something that isn't what they believe. So I learned a lot of that from him. The other thing is that I learned so much from Michael Cascuna. Mm. Michael's a genius, this guy, and he's now you know, been running Mosaic Records forever, but he had been working with Blue Note the entire time. And not only did I learn a lot from him about catalog, because I've done a lot of reissues and compilations and liner notes and stuff like that as well, but the record production piece. Um, and again, he and I work differently in terms of how we produce, but the couple of things that I did learn from him about documenting the moment, about setting the scene, about comfort in the studio for artists and a lot of that was really, really helpful. Mm. So it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was only, it was just less than four years of my life. But, yeah. you know, over time, I'd still stay in touch with Bruce and see him. I'm still see Michael now and then. Um, Bruce was a true mentor, and this guy was so supportive and so positive and the couple of times that I did something wrong he took care of me. Yeah. He was like no he was like you know you've disappointed me. <laughs> and it was like my dad, you know, yeah. saying it. So That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing all yeah. that. Uh, let's talk about in 1992 you moved over to Warner Brothers yeah. and and was made a huge impact on the scene there. So Maybe talk about. I mean, I I didn't know that you had been hired by Mo Austin, which right. is uh, pretty well, pretty uh, pretty amazing well, the, uh, in, in and of itself. But but the way then, it went the way it went down. It's, I, I had gotten to know Tommy Lapuma and Russ Teitelman. Um I I knew Tommy because at one point you know Rick Margitza. Sure. Rick was a student of my father's, and I'd known Rick forever. We were roommates oh, wow, for a okay. while in college as well, and he was 
you know, still he's a genius musician, but at that point I was like, this is a guy I'd love to work with. So I was signing him to Blue Note when I was at Blue Note after knowing for so long. And somehow I got wind that, that, that Miles needed a sax. No, no, not. I wanted Miles to hear Rick. I think that we had heard that Kenny was leaving the band, mm. uh, Kenny Garrett. And I said to Michael, what should I do? He said, well, call Tommy. So I called Tommy Lapumi. He said, Michael Kaskuna gave me your number. I got the sax player you should hear. And I sent Rick's tape to Tommy. And then Tommy called me back and he said, man, this guy's unbelievable. And I've just played Miles the tape over the phone and he loves him. Can Rick be over to the SS house tomorrow to meet Miles? I'm like, wow. shit, yeah. <laughs> you know? So that happened. And then he got hired. He got called, got called to play with Miles. Right. And what happened was he got to the first gig and Kenny hadn't left the band. And they played like one gig, and afterwards it was like, look, this isn't going to work. Sorry, Rick. But then, several months later, he called him again to come on when Kenny had left the band. But at that point, I met Tommy, and then Tommy called me. He goes, let's get together. Mm -hmm. and, and we met, and Tommy wanted to hire me to be his assistant because he saw that I was a musician and that I knew a lot about different parts of the business, and I knew a lot of young musicians. And I had a meeting with him. He set up a meeting with Russ T with 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 um, Mo and Lenny Warrenker, the president of Warner, trying to hire me, and they didn't let him hire me. Um, so I stayed at Blue Note, and I got to know Russ Teitelman, who's a fantastic producer, sure. um, just as friends. And So anyway, what happened was I was talking to Russ one day, and I said, so what's going on? Because Tommy left Warner, and he, he was like, they didn't do what he wanted for his the contract he wanted they his contract was up and they gave him like a ten thousand dollar raise and he had made millions of dollars for the company so so he decided to leave to go to Electra to work with his old friend Bob Krasnow and I said to Tommy uh, to Titleman what's going on over there on the NR for us well I don't know maybe no one's doing it you want me to check and he called uh, I think he called Lenny and and then um and said, yeah, they're interested. Come out. They'll fly you out for an interview. So I, went, I was going out for an interview. And right before the interview, I called um, Tommy. And I said, so Tommy, listen, I'm on my way out to meet with Mo and Lenny about the NR gig there. He goes, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling Mo. So then he called Mo that night and put in a word for me. Wow. So, wow, cool. so yeah, I went out. This incredible thing. I'm, like, sitting there in Mo Austin's office. And Mo, for anyone who doesn't know that much about him, I mean, he started as the accountant. He was at Verve Records. Um, and he was the accountant at Verve. And then when Sinatra started Reprise, he went and was like Reprise's accountant, GM type, type person, running Reprise with Sinatra. And then he ended up, run, ended up running all of Warner, Brother, Warner Reprise. But unbelievably brilliant, legendary music guy. Not only was he, 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 it wasn't that he had a great ear for music, he had an incredible ear for executive, incredible sense of executive talent. Mm. He knew what he didn't know, and he knew how to put people around him who knew what, to fill them those blanks. Those gaps, yeah. And his overall sense of the business was unbelievably unmatched. Mm. And this is a guy who signed Hendrix. Yeah. And when he signed Hendrix, he gave Hendrix the right to his masters. And that's the way he got him. Yeah. And he, his feeling was, this guy's not going to go anywhere once he's here. You know, once we, we have to have faith in who we are and what we are. I mean, they signed Prince and stuck with Prince without any hits. So there was all this stuff about it. So, but we, when I had the interview, I was able to sit with Mo for a couple of hours and hear all these great stories about Sinatra and Verve. And yeah, everything. I can only so, imagine. So when you look when you look back on, I mean, you did so many projects at, at Warner. Uh, 
and not to single anything out because I'm sure that many of them have very special uh, specific mm. things to you. But what what are what are some of your uh, ones that jump out at you that you remember well, uh, in specific kind of ways? I mean, it was it, I was there for twelve, thirteen years, yeah. and and you know I think that you know when I got there, the only jazz artist on the roster straight ahead jazz artist on the roster was Mark Whitfield. The rest of the roster was all people who Tommy had signed and it had a lot of commercial success. So it was it was um, George Benson, Michael Franks, Earl Clue, Joe Sample, Foreplay had made their first record. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a lot of commercial jazz. And all of those artists were starting to sell less. So I had to kind of balance out the roster. So part of the straight ahead side, like I immediately signed Kenny Garrett. Mm. Because um, he was available, and I always felt Kenny was the player of his generation, and if we could make the right records, we could do really well with him. And then developed very careful set of jazz, straight ahead jazz artists. So, you know, it was Kenny and and then I signed Joshua, mm-hmm. Joshua Redman, which was an incredible experience. I went and saw him at the Monk competition, and after the after the semifinals. Um, he just blew me away, and that night I said, "I want to sign you to Warner." And he's like, "What if I don't win tomorrow?" I'm like, "I don't care," <laughs> you know. <laughs> Although we all know he was going to win. <laughs> but you know, signing Josh and working with wow. Josh was a huge, huge Fortuitous experience. Moment there. And, wow! And that band, uh, the Mood Swing Band, um, working with you know that band with Brad and McBride and Blade, um, that recording, which is, I think has really stood up, was so so important to me, sure. and being involved in that. So all the stuff that I worked with with, with with Josh was really important. The Brad thing really stands out because yeah. um, when I first heard Brad, it was right at a time when um, some ev- everyone was fighting over signing another piano player. It was the hot guy, and I was interested in him. But then I went and, and I went to a gig and heard Brad. I had heard Brad with Christopher Holiday once, and he blew me away. But I hadn't stayed in touch with him, and then I went and heard one of his first gigs playing with, with Josh, and I had never heard anything like this. He, it, in a selfish way, he was everything I, I personally wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Okay, like this perfect combination of intellect and groove. It just had it all, and it was so effortless the way he played. Mm-hmm. And it was Winton Kelly meets Herbie Hancock, and mm-hmm. I'm like, this is my guy. He's doing everything I want to hear, and so I passed on this other guy and I went for Brad who no one else really knew about. The musicians knew about him in New York. He was starting Mm -hmm. to make a name but and he had just gotten in Josh's band so I started working with Brad and it was a a challenge over time Um, but what I felt was especially we did the first record that was half with the mood swing rhythm section it was with um, McBride and Blade and half with Brad's current band he had just put had been working with which was Larry Grenadier and Jorge Rossi. Mm-hmm. And when I worked with that trio, as great as the mood swing rhythm section was, that trio had a real sound. Mm-hmm. And Brad was really doing something special with that trio. So I proposed to him to do, I said, I want to do a series of trio records. I want to just record you guys as much as we can. I want you to tour your asses off. I want to do studio records and live records and put out a series, and we're going to call it The Art of the Trio. And as lofty as that title is or whatever, and um, he went for it, thankfully. And I felt strongly about enough about it that we could make that statement mm-hmm. and create a series of recordings. And you know, I think they've really stood up. No and doubt. He's, and, yeah. and he's a guy that just—he's an—he's—he's un—he's just an unbelievably talented visionary, talented visionary artist. Mm-hmm. And it was very complicated at times, but one of the sweetest guys in the world, and just 
an immense talent. Mm-hmm. So to me, in, in terms of signings, he's probably one that really stands out. But it's all special for different reasons. I mean, making yeah. records with Larry Goldings, the three Mark Turner records I was able to make. I almost never made fewer than three records with an artist. I'd find a way to get the third record out. <laughs> so that with, with, with Goldings, even though we were having challenges selling Larry, uh, I didn't. Uh, we made the first two organ trio records. I was like, I want to make one more record. And I said, What do you want to do? And we did a piano trio record with Grenadier and Paul Motion with mm. with Larry. And I'm really awareness. I'm really proud of that record. Mark Turner. We did three Mark Turner records that are still I'm very very proud of. And musicians bring those up to me all the time. So even though you know it's not like you view Mark Turner on a major label, was that necessarily what needed to happen at that time? For me, I heard the guy. I'm like, We got to do this. So, and then signing Pat Metheny was was something I'm extremely proud of, and sure. Pat to this day is a very dear friend, mm-hmm. and he exemplified to me, and still does, exemplifies everything that can be great about an artist. Um, the 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 balance of incredibly deep talent, depth of artistic integrity, incredible diversity, yet infinitely accessible and uncompromising like that balance that he's had over his career and how brilliant he's positioned himself and how brilliantly he's positioned himself is just you know something that I use every time I talk to an artist that has any any variety of what they do it's like you got to find a way to do, do what Pat did mm-hmm. not in the way he did it but look at that career and how he was able to create the group and then do these trio recordings and solo guitar recordings and soundtracks. and But no matter what, he could always feed the Pat Metheny group. Mm-hmm. And that would be, he'd tour, he'd get out there, he'd bring in all these fans, and when he did another project, people knew, I might like this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to like this. I might not love it, but I'm going to check it out. So yeah. he could do Song X or Rejoicing or any number of other things. Um, so that that's the thing. But to me, he's without question the most important artist in jazz of our lifetime mm-hmm. um, for a v- variety of reasons so you know the chance to work with him and to sign him to Warner he had been on Geffen was really really important which records did you guys do with, with, with the group with the group um, uh, well we the first we did Imaginary Day which was um, right and then we did The, did way, you, the way Up it oh, was, you did the way. That's yeah. one of my favorite um, records. And we did. Time. We also did Pat's um, the trio records with mm. you know. So we did trio ninety nine hundred and the trio live record. We did one quiet night soul guitar record. Um, we put out um, soundtrack project. It was a, a series of things. And that deal after I left Warner, a few years after that, his deal he's still on Nonesuch. Right. See, after he left Warner, Nonesuch was able to pick up any of the contracts that were left when I left when they closed the jazz division at Warner. And so they picked up Brad and Josh and Pat. So they're all still on on Nonesuch. Mm. And those deals are, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I don't know the legal part of it. I think probably they're all still the deals that we signed or extensions of the deals. Awesome. Yeah. Great work. That, the way up, I mean, I, I still, I still probably, <laughs> yeah. if I had to pick one record, that's oh, like, yeah. I just, I just, I, I just yeah. I, I'm like, you know, Imaginary Day is one that just, really got me I yeah. mean, but it all As they a, all it, do in they, different ways exactly I mean I had known Pat before like we had worked together on, on Joshua's record and Kenny Garrett's record and on Milton Nesson I did Milton Nesson Angelou's record um, 
it was as early in my production, I mean, it, may, it might be the 15th record I produced or something, mm. but we did a session with Herbie, Ron Carter, Jack DeJunette, and Matheny with Mel Nascimento. You know, wow. but uh, yeah, it was. Was it in this room? Nice booking. This, I think it was. It was in this room. I think. No, no, it was. It was Avatar. Avatar. Uh huh. Yeah, it was very funny. It was a wild experience because we did. I can only imagine. We yeah. did the tune. Um, uh, God, I can't believe I've forgotten. I'll remember in a second. Really great, uh, uh, Milton tune, salsa, uh, samba, and um, we did a take, and it was all over. The, it was fantastic, but it was Herbie and Pat and Jack and all of this and we came in we are listening to the playback and I'm all fucking nervous because I'm like oh my god what am I doing with all these people people I had met over you know here and there but I had never been a producer on a record with these guys on a session yeah. and we listened to the first take and and at one point during the take Ron stopped playing for like three bars and then started playing again and right around that point, you know, I think Pat said, what's going on? And, and we stopped tape, stopped listening. And Ron's like, man, you know, Herbie, you're playing all this stuff over here. And Pat, you're doing all this. And Jack's all of this. I mean, you know, if someone would just play a fucking whole note. <laughs> and Herbie, Herbie says, I'll play a whole note. I won't play it on one. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and there was this uh, this tension that was obviously kind of existed between Ron and Herbie, and I'm I'm this kid producer sitting here in the situation with them, and Pat said, "What do you think?" To me, and I'm like, mm. "It's like my moment. What the hell am I going to say?" And I just kind of said, "You know, I think I think we should do another one, and just let's. There's so much music going on; it's all really beautiful. Let's just let's just let's just make sure we leave space for each other. I think is something like that. I said, mm. like, okay, cool." Yeah. And they went out and we got a great take. Yeah. And I'm like, that's all it was? That's all it took? <laughs> but, well, but you, yeah. you certainly have a knack for it and, and it's more than just that one statement, well, that's for sure. I, I've, I've been on the, the receiving end of, uh, of your good direction. So I, well, it's, you, you, it's a, well, you've done it time and time again over the course of your career. Um, you know, we could talk about all the projects you've done and, and do a whole interview just on that um but i'd like to if you don't mind i'd like to shift gears right now and just want to ask you a, like a simple question but it's going to have a very complicated answer i think um you know we hear about how everything is so different now with with youtube with downloads with all all the aspects that have caused the record industry to change you know in a in is 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 clearly as you can put it because you have insight that none of us have access to uh, and experiences that none of us have access to um, how do you feel the record business has changed over the last 20 years and how has specifically how has jazz changed in terms of a, a product that's marketed uh, in the last couple of decades did did you say I have an option to not answer this question <laughs> was that a, no you did that I was not that, box? that, that was, was not on the oh, uh, but, <laughs> uh, well you know it's it's um I guess the way I'll answer that, which is if we're talking specifically about jazz, um, we have to remember that we can't do that, okay? <laughs> um, um, you know, if we're going to do that, not only will we get depressed, but, you know, we're going to lose sight of where music in general has been going our entire lives. Um, you know, uh, there has been so much cross-pollinization creatively and with audiences and all of that that the minute we think about just one sector, one genre, we lose sight of our potential audience, and we lose sight of um, of, of 
what's been happening in other genres that if, if strongly affects our not just positive opportunities that we might have from learning from others, but how it affects us negatively. We need to kind of reveal, view ourselves as being part of an overall industry. Mm -hmm. um, and as much as possible, look for positive opportunities and not um, mire ourselves down, ourselves down in the potential ways that are going to depress us and be negative, because that's really easy and that can be, yeah. That, I mean, it, it, we, it's a very dark time in many, many ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think that first of all, what what's most important is through all of it is the balance of art and commerce, and having an understanding of what that is. And all that basically means to me is, you know, the art piece has to be about personal connection with a listener. Uh, no matter who you are, no matter what kind of music, music you're making, your goal has to be to tell a story and connect emotionally with a listener to a degree that they're engaged enough to give you their money. Mm. And that's mm -hmm. where the commerce part comes in. How they're going to give you the money is just about what revenue streams exist and how are you going to, you know, get that payment for that emotional connection. But if it starts with the emotional connection, it starts with the creation of the music itself, it starts with who are the artists that are going to be able to do this and are the artists giving the opportunities to realize their vision, yet do it in a way that, again, puts front and center what's going to be most connective, then the music can survive. Mm -hmm. So it's about what, what music is being created, what's <coughs> being documented, what's being positioned, and then is there a full understanding within the team of people working with that artist in terms of utilizing in all of the different revenue streams that exist? Um, the problem that is there right now is that that connection is extremely difficult to make. Record companies are very, very backwards in terms, or, or at least I'll say extremely slow to adapt to the new business models because they're a bunch of people sitting in an office, walking in every day and deciding what can I do today? Mm -hmm. Whereas every split second, things are changing and, and, and moving and, and all of that. Um, and there are so many options of how people get exposed to music uh, and so many different ways for that to happen, for that connection to happen, that when the business has gotten smaller, there are fewer people to try to make those connections. So in the past, when you had a staff of 10 people, 12 people, and one person was the radio promotion, per the jazz promotion person. And their job every day was to take all the records that the company put out and get this format of stations that was 45 <laughs> important stations that you would call every week and say, this week we're pushing this track. And then you'd go home and have dinner. And you'd go the next, the next day and say, oh, I'm going to call these stations today. Mm -hmm. That is nothing like what it is today. Um, the, the, the it's very, very different. And each person that works at an effective record company is going to have to be working with this different kind of um, organism of what their area of expertise might be and how they're going to connect those dots. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely complicated and challenging. And especially when you're working with music that has an in, a, a perception of being an intellectual product, an intellectually stimulating product, then you have a problem. And in the problem I have with that is the reason I'm in jazz, in, in jazz or jazz-adjacent music or any singer-songwriters and other kinds of music I work with, the reason I'm in it because I'm emotionally, I'm emotionally connected and spiritually moved. And that's why, you know, if an artist has that, they can make the connection. The perception of jazz now, though, is that that's not what it is. Other than people listening to Kind of Blue or Diana Krall or 
you know, Bill Evans trio or whatever they might happen upon. Um, the perception is that this is intellectual music. And nothing could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, you know, it's exciting. I've, I've only heard part of one track so far, this new Coltrane stuff. It's discovered recording. But I'm like, when you think about Coltrane, as students of music, and when we studied music, it was like tertiary harmony. It was giant steps. It was, my God, this is, we have to learn to blow over this. <laughs> but the reality is the reason Coltrane was important and had, had the line at the half note around the block going to see the quartet was because of the emotional and spiritual impact of his playing in that band. That's what was monetized. Mm -hmm. Not just, you know, that's what was, you know, it wasn't just the financial piece of it. It was an emotional connection that people had with it that they wanted to pay for that experience. And that's why the catalog sells what it does. So I have a, a, a faith in the fact, in the idea of having an industry that leads with its heart and with emotion, leads with artists that have that to offer. And hopefully, if we know enough about the changing revenue streams and all that, we're, we're able to actually still have a business. Mm -hmm. um, from a practical standpoint, I mean, I'm not as up on everything as I need to be. I still have sitting on my laptop all the information about the new <clears throat> legislation in Washington that's hopefully going to be going into effect to understand how the revenue is going to be driven and how it can positively affect songwriters and, and, mas and those who own masters and producers. Um, but good things are happening in Washington. But the fact still remains that music has been completely devalued. Um, we can all look at how it happened and, and analyze it and all that. I have a very strong feeling because I was there. It was very obvious to me that the record company shot itself in the foot record business shot us up in the foot by saying we're going to keep selling these CDs for 16 to $18 with one good song on it and we're not going to sell singles mm -hmm. you know and the consumer knows that they are getting their the song isn't worth that much to them one or two songs on a record so people weren't making good records they weren't albums that that gave them you know and at that point, everyone expected 70 minutes of music, which is fucking absurd anyway. <laughs> like, once you found out you could put 76 minutes on a CD or whatever, now you're going to put all those tunes on a record? Why are, they, why are you doing that? Right. Our favorite records are like 35 minutes long. But anyway, the consumer, though, would say, oh, 70 minutes of music, and they listen to it once, and they go, well, I like that one song, but... And the business, though they tried to put out CD singles and tried to do all this stuff, the singles format went away. And... At that time, P2P popped up. So you had Napster and other P2P services where the consumer could get away with stealing tracks. And there, you know, and so then, you know, all of a sudden everyone's freaking out. They're stealing our music through P2P. Mm -hmm. And where the business fucked up is they, instead of saying, my God, people love our music so much that they're willing to steal it, who are these people and how can we sell them something? What product can we now sell our fan base? because they're getting it for free now. No, they turned around and sued the people, including right. grandmothers whose grandson was downloading tracks in her basement <laughs> and all that bullshit. Like, that's smart business? Yeah. These are the people that want your product. So that, that then created a vacuum where people started just feeling comfortable stealing music. And even though it was illegal, the fact is that music was then devalued. Mm -hmm. when, and then Apple, of course, finally comes up with the music store and sells singles, it was too late. 
Now, of course, it's sold, and downloads have sold, and there's an audience. There's been an audience for that, but by and large, the community of people who we had that we wanted to actually sell our product to was the ownership of music no longer had value. When you then dovetail that into streaming platforms where you can listen to any song at any time on any device for either free or hopefully you're paying 10 bucks a month, that means that all these people that were spending all this money for music no longer are spending that. They might be spending 10 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. So we have to find a way to create a model that generates enough revenue to pay the bills. And to me, it's it's two, it's a few things, but the mo the main issues have to do with Increasing the number of people on the streaming platforms. In jazz in particular, it's about understanding that we have a huge divide right now. You have a jazz audience that is not streaming, so therefore what should be your core fan base that is not huge but it's enough, they're not even paying the 10 bucks a month. They're just sitting at home with the CDs they own or the downloads they own and listening to what they already own. And if there's a, tr a new artist that they like or want to check out, they might go on YouTube or go on the free service, the free version of Spotify. They're not paying 10 bucks a month. And they also, they it's like this weird dichotomy where they, like these people are thinking, oh, well, jazz is worth so much more than that. I love jazz. And if I feed the man, if I pay 10 bucks to, you know, Daniel Eck, that all of a sudden I'm, down, I'm, I'm devaluing the music. When the reality is all those people need to give their 10 bucks a month mm -hmm. and use that service and listen to that service. But the bigger problem is the people that are actually on these platforms are not listening to jazz. Mm -hmm. So when you've got a business that the jazz market has been one and a half to two percent of the jazz, of the overall record business for several years now, but it's only 0.6 or 0 .8, 6, 0.6 to 0.8% of the streaming market, it, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas jazz, when you listen to what this music is and what, what much of these artists are doing, it should travel really well. It should sell really well on streaming platforms. This is really strong lifestyle music. It's great for many different parts of your life. It's, it's some of these playlists could be terrific to, in terms of getting the music out there. The playlists that do do really well in the jazz world, like on Spotify, you know, Coffee Table Jazz and Late Night Jazz and the Jazz Vocal Playlist, these do really, really well. So it's about finding a way to connect that. Mm -hmm. It's getting the streaming platforms to emphasize jazz and position jazz and giving them product that they can stream. Mm -hmm. So many of the things I'm doing now, things I'm doing with Sony and elsewhere, are to try to create content that can get placed on these playlists. Um, the thing about this that I want to make sure I say is that what's beautiful about it, we have to be optimistic and we have to accentuate the positive, um, as Johnny Mercer said. You've got to say... Now, wait a minute here. Back in the 50s and 60s, Blue Note Records, where I had my first job in the business and doing all these reissues, as I did that and I studied the Blue Note catalog, there were years that Hank Mobley or Lee Morgan would put out six records in a year. They'd put out five or six of their own records. Then they'd be on four Art Blakey records and three of the other guys' records. I mean, it was insane. Like how much music was being created. <laughs> yeah. And if you were a fan of Lee Morgan, you'd buy 10 records a year. You'd get it all. At the same time, Andy Williams and Nat Cole and Johnny Mathis and Barbara Streisand and Sinatra and all these people were making five and six records a year. Um, it would, it would, and, and on top of that, everyone was making singles. You'd put out singles. Mm -hmm. And you, if, you're, if your single did well, you'd do another single. And maybe if the label, he had two or three hit singles, says, oh, now we've got to make a record. Let's book a session and finish a record. Put out a record. Like there was an infrastructure to put all this music out. But the way people, ex people 
created music was freewheeling. You, if you were a creative artist, you could continue, you'd go in the studio once a month. Well, over the past 20 years, we've been in a world where you had an album cycle that was like a year and a half as a jazz artist. So you're like, a, you're Kenny Garrett, okay? You know, like this is what I tried to do with Brad. We put out two records a year and it's like that was a revolution, you know? <laughs> it's like Brad Meldow should be putting five records, the equivalent of like five records a year. Right. But you couldn't because the infrastructure didn't exist and the business was on these album cycles. Now, thanks to streaming, if you find a way to finance the recording piece of it, the, the structure is in place to release a lot of content. Now, if you're smart about, the content, about what the content is, and if you pattern the release of that content to be able to drive these revenue streams, it can be a massive business because you're dealing in volume and in volume to a fan base that eats it up. So you're going to feed people who are left. You're leaving money on the table. You're leaving opportunity for connection with music on the table because all these people that if you're, you know, Brad Meldow that would buy 10 Brad Meldow records in a year if they were out, he can put all that music up and stream it. And if you find a way to pace it and put it out and market it, try to segment out which audience might want some of it and market this part to this and this part to these people and this part to these people, all of a sudden the artist can realize all of this vision and all this music that's in them and continue to feed these different fires that are within them, yet have a business. That doesn't conflict. Mm -hmm. So the opportunities, the ranting on about it, but the yeah, opportunities that exist are fantastic. Yeah, it's figuring out how to squeeze money out of it. And to me, it's really about market penetration of the streaming platforms. So it's getting every single person. That's it's you know, I personally think it's really going to be when we finally get to the time that music services are folded into either our phone bill or our cable bill. If that can happen where, and it's probably five bucks is my personal opinion, it's not 10 bucks. I think 10 bucks to people now, music's devalued to a point where I don't think it's worth 10 bucks a month to them. But if every single person in the world, call, you know, everyone in a, in a, in a reasonably, reasonable country that has the money could cough up five bucks a month or the equivalent, or, you know, in, in, in some countries, it's $2 a month. That's where it is now, like a subscription to Spotify in Thailand and places as well. Mm -hmm. If that kind of market penetration exists, our business will generate two or three times as much revenue as it did at its height mm -hmm. because it's that much money coming in. And then all of a sudden you've got something. Um, the other things that are exciting uh, that are happening, mean, you know, obviously artists need to tour and touring is a challenge. Um, the reason touring revenue isn't what it was, I think, and I think people have challenges is they don't have the infrastructure of the record labels supporting their music and their touring. So it's about figuring out that piece in some way. Um, licensing exists, but it's very challenging to get those slots to license your music, and it doesn't pay as much as it did. The other piece that's really a big revenue stream, I think, that still hasn't worked itself out because the platforms haven't you know, been as efficient or effective as they could be, is the direct-to-fan model, which I've been a big fan of Pledge Music, for example, and, and did some consulting with them mm -hmm. and really believe in that model. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you find your super fans, and you could generate an average of 60, 70, 80 bucks from a pro of a project from those because they're buying products that are more engaging and pulling them more into the process. Those people, um, not only are you not leaving the money on the table that could be coming in, but you then have your own virtual marketing team of people that are spreading the word about your sure, music. Sure. So that's a model that needs to still work out some kinks, but I think it's a huge model. 
Do you feel like, and thank you for all that, that's a yeah. tremendous insight you just shared with us. In terms of a young artist, and we have a lot of young viewers that, uh, that um, watch the series. <laughs> um, but there's so many, there's, 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 there are, you know, as, as there always has been, like uh, uh, just streams of really talented young musicians yeah. coming up. Um, what, it, what specifically would it be their path? So you, you think the, the uh, crowdfunding, however you go down that road, is, is a very uh, viable but, source, do you feel, in terms of self-releasing uh, CDs, it seems like that's become like almost a, a necessary uh, yeah. launching point. What's your what's your feelings on on that for young for really young starting out professional wanting to be professional jazz artists? Yeah, you know it's funny. I think that being an older guy, having been in the business a lot of years now, I mean nothing's in a way everything's changed, but in fact, really nothing really has philosophically. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all about building a fan base and generating revenue with that fan base. It's about who can you reach and who can you get on your side and who's going to be willing to give you money to do what you do for a living and there are more ways to find those fans now than there ever were mm -hmm. the internet's like a really cool thing <laughs> no, this no, is kind yeah, of, yeah, this is pretty yeah. fucking cool <laughs> I can pick up my phone and I did one of the funniest things ever last night Mark Marin was on Colbert and he did this whole thing about you know about what happens when you're like, what you what the light your life used to be like, <laughs> you know, and you're and and it was about um, oh shit, it was it was about what about peanut butter, and you're sitting there and you go, what's that guy's name who like invented peanut butter and stuff? He's got three names. What's his name? Shit, what's his name? <sighs> oh well. And then you go on his <laughs> life and stuff, and halfway through the day, you're still going, who the fuck was that guy? And you pick up the phone, and you call a friend, and you get their answering machine that's in their house. Say, hey, that guy, the peanut butter guy, what's his name? Three names. Call me back. Okay, and you hang up. And you go through your whole day, and you're like, who the fuck's that peanut butter guy? And finally, you get home that night, and your light is beeping on your machine, and you press the button, and it's your friend. Hey, it's George. George Washington Carver. Okay, man, call me back. It's like... You went through all that, and it's like right now, boom, yeah, yeah. Wikipedia, peanut butter, George Washington Carver, here's this whole biography, and here's a film documentary about it. It's like, shit, hey. it's really cool. Oh, it's you know? And when you look at exposure of music and reaching fans and building an infrastructure for it for yourself, it's extraordinary what can be done. Sure. So I absolutely think that it's really, you know, this is one of those things, when I've taught music business a, a, a few times at NYU and New School and some stuff at Miami, what I always emphasize, and one of the frustrations I still have about music education now is there is not enough emphasis. You know, parents are sending their kids to school and writing these, these big checks, or people donated all this money to school and it's going on scholarship. And the focus isn't enough on, you're getting a degree, sure, but who gives a shit about your degree? You're leaving that school knowing how you're gonna make a living in a job. When you go to law school, you leave law school knowing you're going to make a living at the job. Young musicians aren't learning that. So not enough people are even, you know, freelance musicians. The number of times I meet with an artist I'm going to produce, and I always say to them, you're going to sign a contract with me as a producer. Right now, I want you to go out and buy Don Passman's book, All You Need to Know About the Music Business. And I want you to buy that book, and I want you to read that book. 
And it's got, you know, you don't need to read every word of it. Some areas it goes into more detail than you need. Just get the fine points. But there's, there's, a, there's a chapter in there about producing and producer mm -hmm. contracts and what you need to know. Go do that because I want you to trust me. Mm. And, okay. And the number of artists that actually, oh, I have that book. There's so few. Mm -hmm. It's like, how the fuck do you not have the Bible of your business that's yeah. going to tell you how to make money in the, your career of choice? That's disgusting. Mm -hmm. And it's disgusting that some people go to a conservatory kind of atmosphere and, and a music school where there might, you know, in some cases there's one music business class, you know, one three-credit class, and they go and they get the Kroslovsky book and they learn about copyright and the basics of the business, but they don't learn entrepreneurship. Or they don't learn about, you know, how is it that I'm going to make money when I leave this, leave this room? Um, what if I don't, what if I play these auditions and I don't get the job in the big symphony? And I end up living in, you know, Grand Rapids, Michigan, making a living as a working musician. What am I, well, how am I going to make a living? Well, if you don't know enough about, if you're a songwriter and you don't know what can happen about your songwriting, if you're in the Broadway musical theater world and you don't know enough about about guilds and about unions and about, you know, the, the um, grand rights and all these things. If you don't know enough about the revenue that's there to be had, if you don't know about arts management, you know, your opportunity won't exist that you say, oh, well, shit, I didn't get the job in Broadway and now I went home to live with my mom, but there's a local regional theater that if I knew enough about management, I could get a job as a marketing guy at this regional theater while I'm still acting or singing. Mm -hmm. Like, not knowing enough about that and not knowing that Without the money, I mean, it's the most basic thing in the world. We all walk into a store and have to buy a fucking Coke. How do you not know that the Coke guys have to make money and you're get, they're getting your money? you got to figure how they're going to buy your talent and your music. Right. So, sorry, but it's, it's, it's frustrating to me that no, so many young artists I speak to, and I go down to Smalls, and these guys are playing this incredible music that's mostly for each other. And this is not just Smalls. I love mm -hmm. Smalls. Nothing against sure. Smalls. But a lot of New York young, talented musicians, it's like, this is incredible. But there isn't a plan for that next step. There isn't, this isn't all with a purpose in mind. And that purpose being, I'm going to make music that's going to reach people and move them, move them and I'm going to get compensated for that because it's my job. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of artists are afraid to accept the fact that it's their job. Now, you're not. You get it. You know how to balance it. Like, your career is fucking fantastic. Yeah. Really, I mean, it's like you're able to play, you know, whether you're in a pit or in a recording studio or making your own recordings or doing the series. You find a way to diversify your career and use your talents in enough ways that you're able to make a living for you and your family and feel the creative impulse fulfilled and build something for yourself. All young musicians need to walk into this, and that's the advice I give you, is... Mm -hmm. Think about all of those factors and learn about all those factors. It's as important to understand the business you're getting into as it is to understand the 12 keys and all the modes of the scales, okay? I, 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 that was so well said, I and mean, I couldn't agree more, and I think that's the issue uh, with, with with these incredible conservatories, but n yeah. uh, many of them have no focus on that whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, you talk about 
the, the, the best of them is University of Miami for my money. And and they have a whole degree in that. It's incredible. Yeah. And they and they, they understand well, that that's a, that's a big Doug, part of it. But well, I mean, when I was in college there in, in the 80s, you know, Alfred Reed was running the music business. You know, we're in a revolution, you know, and he had this whole thing, five cents per selection per side. And get, everyone would take this one music business class where you'd learn the basics of the business. Well, now they've got a couple of classes. And now... They've got a great program where anyone who goes in there, you've got a couple of semesters in music business, at least from what I understand, what I remember. One is the nuts and bolts of the business side, and one is more entrepreneurship, which is perfect, which is great. Yeah. I don't think it's enough even if that's what it is. Like, I think you should also, every week, you should have a forum where you go in for an hour and someone from the business talks to you about the realities of what you're getting ready yeah. for. I mean, it's they have a lot of that, and just seeing yeah. it now, I, I I don't know the full depth of it, but I actually think there's a degree now, and and but I kind of got sidetracked a little yeah. bit in the sense that you know that's the that's the best, yeah, best, yeah. best of the best, and whatever their specifics are, but you know I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, the school that I went to, uh, big schools here in New York, you know, yeah. there's very little attention yeah. paid to exactly what you just described, yeah. and I think it's really great advice for all young musicians, not just young musicians. It's for all oh, of God. us. It's it's constantly changing well, the, you know the thing is that it's actually really fucking interesting yeah i mean it's it's fascinating you know as we watch this business evolve and but you have to because it's your job but at the same time once you get into it, it's fascinating um the advice i'll give young people about getting into this business other than finding yourself artistically and feeling that you are leading with your heart Mm-hmm. And also practice your balls off. Okay, <laughs> it's like I'm working with Pasquale Grasso right now, who is a revolutionary guitar player. He's revolutionary, although he's not playing anything that musically couldn't have existed prior to ni- uh, after 1950. Like it's all bebop, mm-hmm. but we're doing 50 solo guitar tracks, and he's playing. It's Art Tatum. It meets Bud Powell on guitar. It's unbelievable. Mm. But to get to a place where he was doing something that no one has really ever done before on his instrument, and once people hear him, you'll know it's him in three notes. Mm-hmm. Um, he practices six hours a day. I mean, the guitar people who make his guitar just posted this thing on, the, on online about hey, Pasquale's, one of Pasquale's guitars is in, and he's had it for six years, and it's got ten times as much wear as any instrument we've seen. And it's only one of his instruments. Like, that's how much he practices. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. My, you know, no matter what, practice your ass you off. you got to do the work. Yeah. you got to yeah. do the work. Yeah. But you also have to do the work in terms of understanding the business of what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. So very early on, it's like everyone's got to get, again, I'm not selling Don's book, but it's the best one. Yeah. And, you know, it just at least start with all you need to know about the music business. And subscribe, you know, subscribe to the Daily Chord which is South by Southwest has this daily email it sends out that's got links of the most important stories in the music business that day. Mm. And it's just the daily chord, and every day one of them might interest you. Mm -hmm. But at least you know that if something's happening in Washington, if someone is doing something very different in terms of how they're reaching people with their music, it's going to have an overview of story about it. It's all a compilation of articles on all different you wow, know, sources. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really good to do that because then you'll be on top of that. Yeah. And watch what's happening in Washington. Mm-hmm. And although you know, it, all of the extra musical things happening in politics are extremely important, and I'm about, you know, you don't want to get me started talking about politics right now. No. no. But... <laughs> 
there is also there are also things going on in terms of politics that relate to us. Mm-hmm. And I have I've, I have been remiss in not being active in Washington with Grammy on the, Grammys on the Hill and all that stuff. But there is there's there's legislation in place now that's that's got, that's the Senate hasn't signed yet. I, I can't. I feel horrible. I don't remember exactly what happened. I know that the House signed this thing, and it's hope, hoping to go through the Senate shortly. Um, but read up on it like I'm about to, because mm-hmm. I feel bad I haven't. But check that out and understand what's happening with 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 master rights and and, and copyright mm-hmm. right and, and publishing rights and all that on all the new digital platforms because that's all going to affect everyone very directly. Mm-hmm. And it can all mean good things. But like I said. Know what the product is that you're going to end up selling and being a part of. And even if you end up being a pit musician, for a, that's all you do for a living, or if you end up being a music teacher, if you're a teacher, you better be ready to answer that question of that student that says, mm-hmm. how am I going to make a living at this? Mm-hmm. You know, Your responsibility is to be able to answer that question as much as anything, as much as what mouthpiece should I be playing? Because you got to make a living, yeah. you know, and... You know, so that's true. if that can happen, if that balance of art and commerce happens with an artist, with the artists I've worked with where it's worked, and, and, I, and I've seen a record, you know, whether it's, you know, Kenny Earth's Pursuance record, the John Coltrane record, or the Brad stuff, or, you know, more recently, Kirk Whalem's Donny Hathaway project. Um, there are projects, you know, Robert Randolph's recent record I produced. When I see this stuff do that, when I see the creation of something that connects, that documents that artist in a way that really captures the passion and emotion over the story they're telling, and I see it connect with an audience, and I see the look on the artist's face, and I see the look on the fan's face, it's like, that's money right there. Yeah, and, sure. and again, it's, it's not crass. One of the, it's reality. One of the, yeah, and one of the, the crazy things I've always thought was interesting about how people look at music and they think of this thing about a sellout. It's like, wait a minute, you know, this example of Kenny G okay we can all hate on Kenny G all we want but the fact is that he's probably the most successful improviser we've nearly ever seen okay um, he is an improviser he's playing writing music and when he had his most successful recordings as much as we think it's vapid or might think that he's you know got issues musically the fact is that it was genuinely him and his personality. He led with his heart. He told his stories, and he improvised and told stories with his solos, and it reached millions and millions of people. He made money improvising jazz. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't look at him and say, I hate Kenny G. What you need to do is look at it and say, how did he do that? Mm-hmm. What is it about that that ended up reaching people? And the fact is, he was who he was, and he did it. I worked with Boney James, who's still a dear friend of mine. Mm-hmm. The guy, Mount is a serious player. He can really deal. But what he's led with is his personality, his heart, and his soul. And his music, within three notes, I know it's Boney. Now, that's more important than me saying, oh, my God, you just played that, you know, incredible Chris <laughs> Potter solo backwards. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you know? That's a guy doing that. That's not that guy. Right. You know? And so... You know. That's a great a great piece of yeah. advice. Matt, this has been just awesome, man. I really appreciate all your insights and, and stories and, and the experiences that you shared with us. Um, just as we close out, what do you got uh, on your dance card in terms of projects you're working on right now? Um, Pasquale, mm-hmm. which what we're doing, you know, this is summing up kind of like these two projects I'm working on right now, kind of like uh, two of the projects I'm working on now. And this is not anything against any of the other artists I'm producing. I'm, I do a lot of different stuff, but... 
um, two things I'm doing for Sony, actually. Um, one is Pasquale, who, if you haven't heard Pasquale Grasso yet, you're going, going to. Um, the vision I have for it and what we're doing is we're recording 50 tracks. Right. And we're going to release them in sets of five on the digital platforms. And it'll be, it's all solo guitar. It's like five standards, five ballads, five monk, five Bud Powell, Bird, oh, wow. Ellington, okay. um, holiday songs. So we're going to release them, and then the label will work on getting tracks on playlists and working it in that way. So it's a lot of content. And then eventually we'll put out like a comp, uh, uh, an album that will be a combination of a lot of the stuff from them. But the point of it was, you know, to me is this is guys doing, you know, flooding the market with it or putting it out in sets of five is what I think that I want people it's the kind of thing that I think is addictive mm -hmm. and the other thing is that you can do it I mean it's not like it's going to hurt right. too much music wrong mm -hmm. so I'm, we're, that's what I'm doing I'm really excited about and that over the period of time that'll come out and then we'll start doing duo and trio and other stuff with him but nice. he's a revolutionary player and trying to find a revolutionary way to, to expose him to people and again, everything I do, I want to find a way um, that I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm producer, but I have to make product that can be sold in today's market uh, without compromise. So that's what the whole discussion always is with any artist I work with. So that's what I'm doing. The other thing I'm doing is a project that the name is in the works right now, but the working title is um, the group is called New Masters, and the series is called Reworks. And it's for Masterworks. Mm. And the idea is to do, it's cover songs. And it's the most, I'm talking Cardi B, Drake, um, uh, Migos, you name it. Like mm -hmm. the stuff that is getting tens of billions of, you know, like stuff that's streaming more than anything else. But the right. most biggest pop hits. And I'm putting together a group that, it's not that it's no name, but it's going to be a series of recordings that are with different players. So the, the brand name is New Masters, but I'm going to put together the band based on the music. So the first one is just big pop, R&B, hip-hop kind of hits. And so I put together an all-star jazz band of names I can't talk about yet, but it's sure. big names, mm -hmm. you know, serious mm -hmm. players that play together. And we're going to go in for one day and cut six songs. And it's going to be fun cover versions of the most blatantly commercial songs that exist in music today. <laughs> Great. But I'm picking ones that actually have some kind of melody. Uh -huh. And also finding, taking the artistic challenge of saying, okay, this is like a hip-hop tune. Like, this is, you know, Kendrick. And there, it's not a melody, it's him rapping this thing. What instrument could actually play that like it's a real melody? And how cool could that be? So taking it as an artistic challenge of that. But anyway, it's going to be a cover series that we'll put out, again, like six tracks, digital only, getting songs placed on playlists, and build it over time and eventually do more of them, maybe put out a compilation album of some sort, but leading with the music and the tracks. Because, as I said, I mean, putting out an album these days, who's buying an album and who needs an album? Right. You know? I mean, that's the thing. It's like you, you, you make these CDs and who's buying them? I mean, it, it gigs. Pe people say, oh, but I sell them at my gigs blindly not realizing that, wait a minute, no, people are buying that because it's the only thing you're selling. Right. You know? Yeah, that's you know true. I mean, you, and they're not listening to it. You're autographing it. They take it home, and usually they're going to listen to your record on Spotify. Mm -hmm. You know? If you sold them something else, you could autograph a tour book, some sheet music, 
you know, any number of things, they're going to buy it. It's, you're selling music as merch. So the actual release of the music is finding ways to put out tracks and EPs and different flow of product that's really driven by what can the market bear, but also how can the artist realize their vision without the restrictions of the album cycle. Mm-hmm. So that's a little babbly about it. But yeah. those, are the cu- those are the couple of things I'm, 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 I'm working on excited about right now. But some other stuff's really, you know, um, uh, really exciting. So yeah. I'm just keeping busy and yeah. trying to As make a living do. in a dying business, you know? <laughs> I mean, one thing that's important is that I'm trying, you know, like I said, I've, I've kept one foot in each world. I'm really, um, you know, grateful to have this consultancy with Sony Masterworks because it's a great company, but it's not a jazz company. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a jazz element to what's going on in there, but it's a staff of 20 people that are working you know, Broadway recordings, Yo-Yo Ma and Joshua Bell, soundtracks, um, you know, a new, you know, uh, uh, alternative singer-songwriter, Americana kind of artists, and jazz, and a whole lot of different stuff. So the people working the records aren't just thinking of what kind of music. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like that. It's what I loved about, you know, when I moved from Blue Note to Warner Brothers, and Mo said to me, you know, do you want an imprint? Do you want a, a, a Warner Jazz Label and I go no man I want my artists to come out on the same label that Madonna and REM are on because mm-hmm. I don't want people to think that it's a certain kind of label I want people to feel that it's music that's beyond category yeah it's so. a good way to look at it so, yeah. Matt thank you for your time pleasure. today this is such a pleasure sorry and if I've most of babbled all, on most too of all, much no, seriously <laughs> most of all thank you for all the incredible work that you've done and the impact that you've made on the music and and us as as fans and listeners and musicians it's you've you've, you've made a tremendous impact and uh, it's always appreciated and uh, can't wait to hear your next uh, the next oh, uh, matt pearson uh, project <laughs> well, thank you so much that's very nice to hear but appreciate it great okay thank Thanks you matt appreciate it we'll, we'll see all of you uh, next time on bone to pick em.